There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. Assalamu alaikum, ahlam wa sahlan. Good afternoon, everybody, and a very warm welcome to the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature, and in particular to this event, which I'm delighted you've chosen because it's going to be uplifting and wonderful and full of ideas for our own lives because we have three authors. Once upon a time, we had three authors who <laughs> love a happy ending. So if you, if you do too, you're in the right place. Um, Sandhya Menon is a New York Times best-selling author of titles, including When Dimple Met Rishi and From Twinkle With Love. She describes herself as a full-time dog servant and part-time writer, and she lives in the foggy mountains of Colorado. Keith Stewart's debut, A Boy Made of Blocks, was a Richard and Judy bestseller inspired by his son, Zach. His latest is Days of Wonder, a story of family, love, and finding magic in everyday life. Keith is a journalist and was the UK Guardian newspaper's games editor for 10 years. Tai Tashiro is an author and relationship expert with a PhD in psychology. In The Science of Happily Ever After, he looks at modern relationships and investigates how psychology might help us make more intelligent decisions about finding a great partner. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your Happily Ever After panel. <laughs> So let's start, we're going to weave fact and fiction as, as, uh, as we continue through the session, but let's start with fiction. Keith, let me begin with you. Did you always know that you wanted to write happily ever after books, books that were going to end on an upbeat? Yeah, I think so. I think because I'm, I'm not really, I'm, not, I'm quite an optimistic person in a lot of ways, so I think it would be very hard for me to write something dark and pessimistic and shadowy and, and forlorn. Uh, so yeah, I always thought... Um, yeah, and also because I spend most of my time doing journalism, and often real life doesn't turn up with a happy ending, mm. which is really annoying. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think I was always born to be a happy ending person. And is that partly why you think we're drawn, or pe certain people? I mean, certain people are drawn to you know the dark stuff as well, but that, that people who read your books are drawn to that because um, life is not predictable and not always positive and they're looking for for something a bit more i think so shiny. yeah i think you know at, at times in your in your life and also times in, in like the social and cultural environment around us when they're a little bit dark i think it, it, there's a real value um and there's and a real importance in a little bit of escapism but you know my endings are quite tempered in reality so it's not you know ridiculously ecstatic endings <laughs> but i think there's a neatness there's a balance to happiness to ending a book with a happy note and i think mm -hmm. You know, as a species, I think we're drawn to balance. You know, we're pattern finders. We like we like things to be neat and tidy, and there's nothing neater and tidier than happiness. What about you, Sandhya? I am definitely also an optimist, and I think especially when you write for young adults or teenagers, um, there has to be an optimism to the book, even if there's not a tidy, happy ending, which there are in my books. Spoiler alert, but <laughs> even if there's not, I think the entire book should just be infused with an optimism for the future, and um, that's what I think I love about young adults, is that no matter what genre you go to, I feel you will find that optimism there. Mm. Do you feel that you have a sort of contract with your readers? Absolutely, mm. yeah. I think, that, you know, to get representation right and to tell the stories of people who don't get to see their stories very often, and to get that you know, hopeful optimism, all of those things I think you have to pay attention to when you're writing for a younger audience. Mm. And so what's the balance then between 
knowing that we're going to have an uplifting happy ending but not spoil you know a lack of spoiler <laughs> um what's the balance i you know it's hard i think for me it's very intuitive and it's i go where i think my readers will want to follow so i don't really view it as um, a formula of any kind but i just kind of write from the heart and see where it takes me and of course we were talking about edit editing earlier and in edits a lot of that changes but i think the seed of the story is you know is intuition. Mm. We'll come back to the craft of it perhaps a little bit later. So Ty, um, why, okay, from a psychologist's point of view, why do we love a happy ending? <laughs> well, uh, you know, we like to be hopeful and we like to be uh, optimistic that things can be better than they are right now. There's this thing called affective forecasting mm. in social psychology, which is an overly fancy term for <laughs> what we think we'll feel like in the future. And uh, one of the fascinating things about that is we think that negative things will be much worse than they're actually going to be. Uh, but we also sometimes think that good things will be much better, actually, than they're going to be. And I found that middle space to be quite interesting between the two. And uh, in the U.S., for example, we tend to undervalue emotions like contentment. Mm. And if you go back in philosophy and look at what a happy romantic relationship was, Oftentimes they use words like contentment rather than the more hedonistic terms uh, that we use like passion and romance and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So you talk in your, your book about um, expectancy spectacles, <laughs> yeah. which, which are kind of the opposite of, um, well, no, they're not really the opposite of beer goggles, but um, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. just explain what you mean by expectancy spectacles. Yeah, well... We have kind of these rose-colored glasses, right? And so if you've fallen in love with somebody, uh, then you know the feeling of the heart pounding and the butterflies in the stomach. What a wonderful emotional state to be in. And uh, there's really few things in life that are better than that. But if you look at people's brains <laughs> when they're in this state, it is a neurological disaster uh, there. So, um, so, so what's going on then? Well, the reward centers are really lit up, right? Bright red, mm. um, which is great. That's why we feel so good. The fascinating thing about the neuroscience research is that this part of your brain right here is what we call deactivated. And this is the part of your brain that's important for impulse control, <laughs> it's important for planning, and assessing costs in a situation. Oh. So when we're in passionate love, this um, heart-thumping kind of love, which is so wonderful, we actually aren't making cost-benefit analyses. We're making <laughs> benefit analyses. Mm. And uh, I mean, that's nice. You know, it's nice, but I think it's good to put some guardrails up so that if you're in that state, you don't get yourself into a situation that takes you down the wrong road. Mm -hmm. Is that why sometimes we read articles about how somebody fell in love with someone on the internet and they took them for everything they had, and you're like, how did that happen? Oh, yeah. You mm -hmm. could see that coming from 100 miles away. Exactly. You know, and even um, all of us could probably think of examples where you've had a friend who is otherwise very smart and <laughs> capable <laughs> who uh, fell in love with somebody, and everyone around them is saying, this is a really bad decision and just zero intake uh, of that. And part of it is they're actually deactivated. It's actually harder to get them to think about those things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's quite hard to, um, all, the, all the symptoms that you're explaining there, it's actually really hard to write about a character falling in love, isn't it, in, in fiction. Um, 
like because it all sounds like you referred to like the oh, term neurological disaster. Can we take the block as I no more happiness today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's your quotient. Sorry, let's start that. So the idea of yeah. how do you write that into fiction? Yeah, because it's really interesting when you're trying to write about a character falling in love, like the way you described it as a neurological disaster, which it feels like, you know, things like butterflies in the stomach, like it feels wonderful, but to try and describe those emotions is really hard. And right. without, without oh, making yeah. it sort of stereotypical and, you know, been done in the same way a million times before. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like you have to try and find terms. Like in, in Days of Wonder, with my character Hannah, who's uh, like 15 year old, who, who, who starts to fall for a boy called Callum. And I was trying to think of how can I explain this feeling of kind of being lost without going through all the, um, all, all the standard stuff. So in the end, mm -hmm. I think she just like, she, she's just standing there with this boy thinking, I don't know what to do with my arms. What do I do with my <laughs> arms? Where do my arms go? And that's like, the, that's the, I just use that as a way of showing like that lack of control right. you suddenly feel. That's brilliant. Yes. So. And that's something, and you, in, um, uh, when Dimple met Rishi, when Dimple met Rishi, sorry, um, um, you, there's, there's a sort of, um, a, without spoiling it, there's, there's a build up, isn't there? So you, right. how, how do you temper that? Right. So that was a hard one because it was like they, you know, they absolutely didn't want to end up or Dimple didn't want to end up with Rishi. Rishi was full steam ahead from mm. the beginning. And so it was really hard to kind of balance it because you don't want the guy to come off as completely creepy. But <laughs> at the same time, you want to, you know, it needs to make sense that they end up together. And so um, there were a lot of edits involved, but I also went with awkwardness. Like I mm. think awkward teenagers in love are the best thing. And maybe that's something you know, that's based in science, but I feel like people really get awkward when they like someone. And that's really fun to write. I don't know about you, but I, those were my favorite parts. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, those that the awkward interchanges between two teenagers. Exactly. Like, they're absolutely, it's rubbish to go through, I, but right. it's hilarious to write. I know, but it's great fodder for fiction writers. Yeah, yeah. Does, does everybody go through an awkwardness phase in these things? And some people find their way out of it. And some people, to be honest, they're forever in that awkward situation. Oh yeah. yeah, I mean, but everybody goes through. Personal experience. Yeah, no, it, I don't think it ever gets easy. And uh, my second book was about social awkwardness, mm. and the chapter about dating was the easiest one to write um, <laughs> because what's more awkward than than dating, right? Mm. And awkward moments arise when we have small deviations from really minuscule social expectations, like what do I do with my arms? <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it's who cares really but right. you care a lot right yeah right. and we just don't know people are so idiosyncratic in love mm. how what do they want you to say do they want you to be conservative do they want you to be more romantic uh, do they want you to hold their hand not hold their hand um, it's so hard to tell because everybody's so different and mm. I think that's why we feel so awkward and when we're teenagers we're just trying to deal with life, uh, too, and so you layer that on top of it, and it can be very uncomfortable, but very <laughs> exhilarating all at the same time. Mm -hmm. So when you two are building characters, and you're thinking about your characters, perhaps even before you start writing, is, is that, particularly with your romantic side of things, is, is, is their attitude to um, love and their, their social awkwardness or otherwise, is that something that you very deliberately think about? Yes, and I think part of that is just knowing your characters really well, um, so they become fully fleshed out people. When I'm in the middle of a draft, I actually 
this is going to sound super strange, but I actually have dreams about my characters where I'm sitting with them in a restaurant and eavesdropping on their conversations, and they just become really real. And I think when that happens in um, a fiction writer's head, it's just, it's kind of like you're transcribing what's happening to these very real people. So it it's planned out, but also it's not planned out in a sense, because it just, I think it flows naturally from really loving and knowing your characters. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think what I, when I set when I set out to write uh, a character, I, I do actually think like what what's going to make this character happy, right? What, right. And it, and often it's not um, what they think is going to make them happy. Right. And I, I think it's important, like when you're oh, writing yeah. a character, like n- knowing what they want and knowing what actually what they need. But I think yeah. starting with a character's happiness and what's going to make them happy in this story is really really important mm-hmm. because you know that mm-hmm. that's that that's the underlying mo- motive of everything they say and do mm-hmm. in the book and. Right. Um, in day, Days of Wonder, everything, all the happiness is tempered by the fact that the lead character, Hannah, has this um, really serious heart condition, which could be uh, fatal. And her happiness is to make sure her dad's going to be okay. So you've got this, you've got a real kind of tension there. But her happiness is really important. So that's the difference between the need and the desire. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she, she kind of sublimates her own desire for happiness. She doesn't think of her own happiness. It's She wants mm. to make sure her dad's going to be okay if anything happens to her. Mm. So, um, yeah, her interpretation of happiness is quite complex. Mm. But all of the juice of the book is it is, is kind of in that really. mm-hmm. and do you write along that way where you're thinking about the, the need and the desire so what we what that character thinks right you know that's that's where they want to be going but actually right. that's not you we need to be over there really. right and actually i use these character sheets to you know it it asks like what's your character's biggest goal and dream and and one of the questions is what does your character um, think she needs and the next question is but what does she really need mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so true that you mm-hmm. have to know both and especially in a, in a book where, um, like in both my books, my characters are really interested in their parents and what their parents want as well, coming from immigrant parents and, you know, just having this, these divergent, in some cases, um, belief systems. They are really, they want to make sure their parents are happy, but sometimes that's, you know, directly opposed to what they need to do mm-hmm. to be happy and how do you kind of reconcile the two. That, that's so interesting because in a very different way that reflects... The, the stories that I came upon when I was writing Days of Wonder, because yeah. when I was writing it, I, I had to go to, I went to Great Ormond Street Hospital and went to the cardiology, pediatric cardiology ward there, and um, was talking to the cardiac surgeons about teenagers with heart conditions, and, and what really surprised me was that they said that uh, a lot of the teenagers, all they wanted to do was make sure their parents were going to be okay, yeah. and, like, and the, the teenagers found themselves managing their parents' happiness at like the hardest point in their life, and right. I think that's you know, maybe that's, it's, it's weird, but maybe that's a sort of, you know, kind of a universal thing right. that you worry about. Yeah. You don't, yeah. But there's also then that continuation that somebody will be happily, happy ever after eventually. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because if you can't control your own happy ever after, then you, you, you want to lay out that path of, you know, yeah. eventual yeah, Possibly. yeah, the possibility of happiness yeah, somewhere, somewhere along, yeah. along the along Whatever the that happiness means. So let's talk a little bit then about um, what constitutes a happy ending. Mm. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, think, I think it it really varies, doesn't right. it, in the sort of genre of a novel, because sometimes happiness is merely like the, 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 the re-establishment of order. Uh, like if you're, you know, in certain genres, like in the crime fiction 
uh, if you can say there's happiness in like an, in a ranking novel, <laughs> that the happiness is the <laughs> is establishment. Is he a ranking of, in the audience? Uh, <laughs> he's not interested in happiness. In a detective drama or in a psychological thriller, the happiness is the re-establishment of order, mm -hmm. symbolic order, and that's yeah. all you need. Whereas in our books, happiness is, 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 um, is very different. Um, but I guess, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I had this reader reach out to me one time on social media and, and she said, um, why did Dimple and Rishi have to end up together? I really wanted them to break up. And, <laughs> and my other readers kind of dogpiled her and were like, then it wouldn't be a romance. <laughs> Leave our romances alone, you know? And I think there is like a genre expectation with if I wrote two readers or two um, characters who didn't end up together, I don't think people would ever buy my books ever again. <laughs> so, you know, really I give them happily ever after so I can eat. <laughs> Have you been surprised at the passion that, that fans come back oh, yeah, with? Yeah, I love it. I think it's so great because I think that means that hopefully that it feels real to them and that they, it's, it's not my book anymore, it's their book now. Mm. And so it's really cool to see that. Mm, mm. Um, although Ian Rankin doesn't write happy particularly, <laughs> there is, in that sort of genre, there is a kind of comeuppance for um, the, the baddies, if you like. Yeah. Um, so is that also part of the, um, the, the happy ever after, if you see what I mean? It's a, so it's a kind of not altogether pessimistic, although it may not be hugely happy either yeah i mean it's important that the baddie gets the yeah you know, definitely i mean i don't i don't know how much you deal in in your in your career with like the the, the sort of concepts of catharsis and mm. uh, and and uh, or schadenfreude um but the idea of seeing someone that you've uh, in a book that has uh, that has been a, a villain who's that's been nasty all the way through and got away with a succession of things because mm -hmm. you've got to build the enemy up and you've got to build up the, the amount of stuff they get away with and then to have that turned around yeah, satisfaction is a form of happiness, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think um, my research originally was on breakups and divorce, and mm. there's a lot of room for schadenfreude with your yeah. ex <laughs> in these situations. And uh, it, it's an interesting motivation, right? Because it does feel quite good. Uh, but on the other hand, it's not aimed at something noble necessarily or some... <laughs> something that's growth producing and so ultimately maybe a bit of a dead end but uh, it, it sure makes for great drama and, yeah. and intrigue. Yeah. Mm. Let's come back to this idea of need and desire and, and in the, the reality sphere. Um, is that a model that you are, that, that uh, social psychologists work with in terms of what people think they need and sorry, what people think they desire, but actually what they need is something completely different. It's something that you recognize in your field. Yeah, so they, um, you know what we need in a long-term relationship is we need someone who's reliable, which sounds really boring, <laughs> but um, that's, that's actually one of the key things, that we can ha be securely attached to this person we know will be there to support us regardless of if we're in our best moments or our worst moments, um, and we could be apart and, and they'll stay loyal and all those kinds of things, so um, that's what we need. Now, what we desire <laughs> does not take us towards that necessarily. So if you look now at speed dating studies or online dating studies, you can actually see which traits or characteristics people are emphasizing. Um, and while they'll say they <laughs> want someone who's kind or moral or all these lofty ideals, they go for looks and money, usually. <laughs> you know? And looks and money don't necessarily get you 
the kind of stability and security that we would need in a long-term relationship mm -hmm. for a happily ever after. Mm -hmm. yeah. Tell us about the parallels with baseball. <laughs> uh, I actually did not angle it this way, but there was this book Moneyball that came out by Michael Lewis uh, about the Oakland A's and uh, the statistician who found a way to win baseball games for a team that had very little money. And uh, the book, uh, The Science of Happily Ever After, I guess was kind of money ball for dating in the sense that if, you, if you're not the richest team in baseball, if you're not the Yankees, so if you're just a mere mortal, um, then how do you get the most value? And psychologists talk about this way, it sounds horrible, but they talk about the dating market. So in the dating market, how do you get the best partner possible? And it turns out there's undervalued characteristics. Um, for example, emotional stability uh, not being neurotic is a really powerful predictor, obviously, of long-term satisfaction and long-term stability. But when you watch what people actually choose partners on, it ranks about ninth in the priority list. Oh. Now, I would rank it number one, mm -hmm. uh, just from a purely rational perspective. So there's a trait that's really undervalued in the market, but if you were to choose on that, now you have a significantly better chance of finding a happily ever after. But how do you know? Mm. You don't know. That's the problem. Yeah. 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 You, you don't know because your brain is a neurological disaster. Yeah. Right. Okay. Also, if, yes. you're, if you're on a first date with someone and you're sitting down in a restaurant, it's very hard to say to them, so how emotionally stable? <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to yeah. 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 They're going to get yeah. up and walk away, really, aren't they? I wouldn't recommend doing no. that, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> is that from experience? Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> it, it turns out that we're not great predictors. The affect of forecasting is not very good. Um, but your friends and family, as much as we don't want to hear this, our friends and family in aggregate are quite good. And so if you were to ask a diverse group of friends and family members who know you well, who are good judges of character, how neurotic is this person on a scale of 1 to 10, and you average those scores, and then you use that to predict it would actually predict far better <laughs> than your own ratings of the ah. So you can have your whole family outside that restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Holding up boards. Yeah, that's right. Even though we're on our best behavior, yeah. right, to start, it can't help but seep out yeah. in these little micro behaviors. Yeah. So how much has technology changed um, our attitudes to dating and, and obviously also the way that we meet people and fall in love? Well, I'd love to hear what, what you all say about this as, as well. Um, it turns out when we uh, predict commitment, so will someone commit to a relationship and stay committed? It's the same algorithm they use in the business school or economics department to predict when you'll buy or sell your house or a stock or whatever else. And it's what do you want, what do you think you're getting, and what are your alternative options? It's really just three things, and you can imagine how those line up. I think what online dating has done is it's exponentially increased the perception of attractive alternative options. That there's, this, there's thousands of people you could date. And what's happened sociologically is the rate of commitment has gone down dramatically. And what they're saying about the millennial generation is they'll just marry later. I, I don't know that that's necessarily a safe assumption. I'm, I'm agnostic to that. I don't think mm -hmm. that's right or wrong. but. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. We'll, we'll adjust to it as yeah. a society, but it's just still so fresh, we're not quite but sure do, what to but do. But do the stats, yeah. I mean, the, the millennials, they're getting on now, the millennials, aren't they? I mean, they're sort of 
40-ish. So are they? The, the elder millennials. Hands up for a millennial. How <laughs> yeah. old are you? Um, no, but so, <laughs> so, so do the, can we not see that from the stats already? Yeah, so they, they marry um, much later. In fact, if you compare them to boomers, um, by the age of 30, they marry half as often as the, the boomers did. Now, an upside to this is for the first time in decades in the U.S., the divorce rate has gone down. Mm -hmm. um, and it's partly this deliberation about what would actually be a good decision here in, in the long run. So I don't see it necessarily as a bad thing. Um, it's just it's just changing. Mm. Mm. I think it's quite. I think um, something that Tinder has done, the Tinder generation has done, has kind of gamified dating. And it's also, and it's like, like you say, it's turned it, you know, swiping right has become a phrase that we're all aware of mm -hmm. in the dating scene. And it, and it has created, we, we do now have this mass of options and it's kind of the Netflixification of dating. <laughs> yeah. in the, when, you're, when you go to sit down and watch Netflix, like when I was young, there was four channels in, in, in the UK, but now you sit in front of Netflix and you could scroll it for two and a half, three hours and then never be able to decide right. on anything. And um, yeah. it, it feels like, yeah. it feels like many choices. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But what does that do in terms of perseverance, really, with a relationship? If you're going through ups hmm. and downs, if you if you can, yeah. Well, with that three-part algorithm, well, mm. what do you think? What do you want? What do you think you're getting? And mm. what are the attractive alternative options? Uh, the attractive alternative options have always been the strongest predictor. And so sometimes people wonder why did this happy relationship break up? It's because it's this perception of attractive alternative options that really people's behavior. So I, I think it's not been good for, mm. for commitment. It's not to say that we can't overcome that or deal with it. Um, but I, I, think that, I think that will happen. You know, mm. I think people will say, hey, there's this thing I really need, and it seems like the trend here is taking me away from getting to that place. Mm -hmm. So you're right, when you're writing um, young adult fiction, um, how do you keep up with the way that people are dating or communicating um, with with one another so that your characters are real to that very real audience? Yeah, so um, that's constantly a struggle for me <laughs> as I get older. Um, but I am lucky that I am also a therapist and so I see adolescents who, you know, really tell me what's going on with them and they spend a lot of sessions talking about their romantic lives, <laughs> which is, you know, although I would never take something from session and put it in my book, but it's kind of keeps me on my toes. I also have a lot, of, I mean, I think social media is great. I have a lot of teen readers who follow me and, um, you know, uh, there are conversations that you can just peek in on and listen in on. And I think that's really important in school visits, you know, so I think there are ways to kind of get I have a, a friend, um, Bill Konigsberg, and he actually goes to high schools and sits in on classes to stay current with what teams are, are thinking and feeling in school. Um, so I think there are lots of ways that you can do it, even if you don't have direct access to teams. Plus, I have uh, kids, um, they're 10 and 11, and so in a couple of years, they're going to be my guinea pigs. <laughs> great. <laughs> You've been warned. <laughs> um, so that's interesting that the the therapy side of things. So in that situation, are you suggesting to those people that you're helping that there potentially will be almost promising a happily ever after? To or letting them work through things so that they, you know, if that's what they aspire to, then you're encouraging them? Do you mean my, my clients in session? Mm -hmm. 
Um, I never promise anything to clients in session just because I think everybody has their journey and what they want and you know they're in charge of that. Mm. Um, so I never let the two, the writing and the therapy ever cross. Mm. Um, but yeah. No, not in terms of writing, but just in terms of a supportive um, environment and so on. Yeah, I mean, I think if people, if I think everybody wants to be happy. Um, that's probably one of the number one goals that everybody has. Um, so yeah, as a therapist, I'm there to support it and help them in whatever way they want. With my characters, I have a lot more control and I can mm -hmm. say, no, you have to go do this now, which mm. makes it a lot easier, I think. <laughs> mm. And do you find that then that with your characters, you do boss them about or they boss you about? They are pretty stubborn. I try, <laughs> but you know, they have a life of their own and it has sometimes become very... Um, we were talking earlier about the sophomore slump where the second book is really hard to write. And um, that happened with my second book and um, From Twinkle With Love started out completely different. So I did have to get a little bossy towards the end because <laughs> otherwise the book would never have landed up on shelves. I think. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about um, the structure of books because if you're going to have a, a happy ending, you can't really start with everybody happy, mm. can you? So maybe perhaps you could just talk a little bit about the, the hero's journey, if you like, and the, and the arc of where you've got to start and where your happy might be at the end. Yeah, so um, when, I, well, when I first wrote um, Boy Made of Blocks, my first book, because I'd never written a novel before, mm. I didn't know how to structure it. So I, I did go for like, the, I went for this sort of, this basically the Hollywood three-act structure, and I, um, which is, you know, you, you introduce your characters, they go through a series of struggles, the second act ends with a great big crisis where you right. think the characters have lost everything and then you pick it up in the third and you work up to a finale. And um, one thing you work out when you're, um, when you're writing a book is you understand immediately why Hollywood uses this structure. And even though when you're sitting there in a film and you're watching it and you, and you can see, you know, you get to like... Uh, 65, 70 minutes, you can go end of act two because <laughs> literally the hero, the, yeah. the hero will, will, you know, will be um, alone, and her her boyfriend might have left her, and her friends will hate her, and you and you know, for, <laughs> oh right, yeah, second end of second, <laughs> but it works. It like it's emotionally fulfilling and satisfying. So yeah, you have to start. Um, I don't think you can start like it's very difficult to start right in the middle of a crisis unless you're writing like a psychological thriller when you you know we've got a dead body there or coming up with a dead body you have to establish your character and you have to establish like a likable relatable community i think you have to understand the world which is about to be um shattered so i think you have to establish human beings that are that are kind of likable and establish the sorts of things that that they want like in days of wonder i really had to establish the relationship between the father tom and and, and hannah um, cause, um, because their, their relationship is really close and funny and I needed to make sure it was realistic because lots of people think of teenagers as being sort of monosyllabic and, mm. oh, I hate you. <laughs> and, um, and that's what I didn't want to do that so I had to make sure because they weren't like that I had to establish them as real people yeah. so I think that's really important I don't she, know if you... she's mature she is really yeah, yeah she's really mature matured I guess by her her, her sort of condition mm. but um, that took a lot of research like um, just very quickly, like I made this ridiculous decision earlier on to like write half the book as Tom and write half the book as Hannah. Mm. So I found myself as a writer, a male writer in my mid forties, writing for the eyes of a teenage girl. I was thinking, what the hell have I done? What am I doing? Um, but yeah, so it was really important to establish her as a as a as a relatable as a voice that works.
Yeah. And, and so when you were doing that then, were you writing, because they both tell the story as they go through, were you writing um, all of Hannah's and then all of Todd's, or were you, were you writing the chapters as them and then... Yeah, I, you know I, I, wrote, I wrote them in order, yeah. So yeah. I wrote, I wrote this, um, so I think it starts with, um, I think it starts with Tom and then Hannah mm -hmm. and goes away through. Yeah, I definitely, I wrote them in order because they very much respond to each other and they reflect each other and they contrast as well. Some of the things that happen, Tom sees it one way, but Hannah sees it a very, very different way. Mm -hmm. And so it was important to, to alternate them uh, as I wrote them because they were very responsive. And, and so that was all planned out way in advance, was it, so that you didn't then have to put a bit of yeah. Tom's in Hannah's and vice versa? <laughs> Some of them got swapped around, definitely. But I tried to, I, I had a very brief synopsis with that book. Um, and I was like, like you say, like the characters kind of led it a bit. When I learned more about Hannah and how she was feeling, suddenly her journey changed quite a bit and then mm. I had to do some juggling mm. and some post-it note moving <laughs> oh, on yes. my wall. Mm. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but mostly I, I wrote them, um, um, Tom, Hannah, Tom, Hannah, Tom, mm. because, they, because they, you know, they react to each other in different ways. They mm. see the world differently. Mm. And um, Rishi and Dimple, you've done a similar thing mm -hmm. and you've actually used a lot of humour in right. you know, the two points of view, haven't you? Right, yeah. And that was really fun because they were such completely different characters that you really felt like you were slipping into someone else's head for a little bit. And because they see the world, they can see the exact same um, situation in completely opposite ways. It's kind of a great way to leverage that for humor um, in a rom-com, especially because they have such divergent goals at the beginning of the book. Mm. And that was really fun. And I was also worried because, you know, I was like, I'm a 35-year-old woman writing a 17, 18-year-old Boy, what am I doing? <laughs> this is never <laughs> going to work. Each other. <laughs> I know, I know. So that was really, yeah, that was kind of nerve-wracking. But then I, I realized I love writing in this, in this boy voice. Like it, even though it was completely different from my voice, it was a really nice departure from the everyday. Mm, mm. Um, let's talk about soulmate. Mm. <laughs> is there such a thing, Ty? Definitely. Who, actually, let's yeah, see. Yeah. Who has found their soulmate in their romantic partnership? Okay, right. <laughs> um, That's actually quite exceptional. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> unusual sampling we, we have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is great. This is great. Um, yeah, there, de there definitely is this notion uh, of a soulmate, and when it works out, then that becomes a very real thing, and fantastic. Uh, so happy for when that happens to folks. Now, but the broad idea of a soulmate can be complicated, uh, especially from the kind of cynical researcher perspective, because <laughs> uh, there's things wrapped up in it that get a little complicated. Mm. So cognitive psychologists have actually looked at what's the contents of the soulmate uh, kind of idea, mm. and it includes some things that are a little bit unhelpful. So one is that it's love at first sight, which is great, for uh, romance, but um, it works against us sometimes then in our everyday life because things will not magically happen for us. We have to put ourselves in an awkward, uncomfortable situation with our arms at our sides <laughs> trying to figure out what to do. We just don't float across the room and you know, magically everything happens. Uh, another thing that happens then in the long run, uh, there's a bunch of things, but one of them is ma magical thinking in the sense that <laughs> You have a long-term partner, you might have heard them say at some point, well, you should know what I'm thinking. <laughs> and they do not. <laughs> you know, there's a reason why there's a disconnect at the point, but we 
the soulmates, we have this magical belief that they can intuit or read our minds. And sometimes people can get the hang of that, but to always expect it is actually really counterproductive. Mm-hmm. And, and also, yeah, I'd, I mean, I, w- I would say I found, I don't know how my wife... Did you rep- put your hands... Your wife isn't I know, here. No, she's not, but I did put my hand oh. up. But I would like to, I, I, what I would like to do is qualify that, and I don't know how she'll take this, hopefully in a good way, but I would say I found a soulmate, because I'm not a believer in there's like that kind there's of, there's only one, one person, person out there for yeah. you. Agreed. I feel like we'd, we're both adults, and I think we both would have, if things had gone differently in our lives. You know, I don't like that idea of, like, destiny, and, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like... Um, because there's put so much pressure on the relationship then, isn't it? Right. And if you yeah. think you found your soulmate and it falls apart, then where does that lead you? So I think, you know, you've got to be more... Fle- ha- happiness is about being flexible. I right, think, yeah. And re- you know, yeah. being reactive. Exactly. Yeah, I think kind of moderating those expectations yeah. right. a bit is so important. Well, and I also think with seven, what is it, seven billion, seven and a half billion people in the world, to think that there's only one correct match is right. kind of... it's. Statistically, there should be a word for that. It's impossible. There should be, yeah. We, we should <laughs> right. come up with a word. Uh, yeah. I, I think the thing that gets gets folks in trouble sometimes, when you look at the broader population, is that a lot of people do believe in the one and only idea, right. for example. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why dating is sometimes really discouraging. Um, because if there was only one person and it was supposed to work out and then it didn't, yeah. Uh, right. well, now yeah. what? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what? On, the other, on the flip side of that, then people maybe persevere with the relationship, thinking that was the one, and yeah, we're going through trouble at the moment, but we'll get there. Yeah, yeah, I know, exactly. But I think if it's a, you have the full soulmate idea around the person and the magical beliefs and the one and only, mm. and all these other things get layered on top of it, it's just, a, like you said, a tremendous amount of pressure, mm-hmm. right, to put on one right. person uh, to fulfill all of these things. Yeah, well, that's about what's knowing what's right for you rather than that transference as well, isn't it? Onto this person's going to make everything right for me and will make me happy. Right. Actually, yeah. you'll make right. yourself happy by your own choices. Yeah, I was wondering if like your characters, for example, start to develop this sense of independence or strength mm-hmm. within as they're going through these relationship struggles. Yeah, I think I definitely, because I wanted to get away with, with Hannah because she has like two possible relationships, like a, a boy called Callum who's a little bit sort of d- darker, not not cooler, but just a little bit more of an edgy personality and her, her lifelong best uh, best friend, Jay. And um, the way that she navigates those two men, I use that a little bit to kind of express her personality because Jay mm-hmm. kind of starts to put a little bit of pressure on her. That kind of pressure you sometimes that teen boys can put on girls where they're like well I've invested this much in our friendship therefore I feel it should lead right. somewhere and um, you know that's something that she has to learn to navigate and I think you know mm. she finds strength from that so I think you know in some way you have to be careful don't you when you're writing characters not to happen too much dictated by their relationships that is right part of it, yeah. it? Like, I think we are aren't we yeah. Right, and I think that again goes back to knowing your characters really well and just making sure that they have their own emotional arcs independent of the romantic journey like they have their own goals and motivations that have nothing to do with the romance mm-hmm. even in a romance i think mm-hmm. that's important and that's true in life as well yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's something that you're quite conscious of in terms of, of modeling for your readers right absolutely and that's why i think both dimple and twinkle are very passionate ambitious young women because they have things outside of the romance that they're you know very um, goal-oriented, and they want these big things. They have big dreams, and I think that's really important to show teen girls because uh, it shouldn't 
and it isn't all about the boy, you know. And I, I mean, I met my husband in high school, but you know, even for me, I had other dreams besides I just want to get married, you know. And I think that's really important to put in books too. Mm. I guess the difference between fiction and real life is that when you turn the, the last page and that is happily ever after, we're done with that story. Mm -hmm. But perhaps your teenage readers are reading that and thinking, okay, great, so that's that's ticked. Um, but actually, in real life, the, the person that you—it's oh, lovely that you met at, at school. <laughs> I met at university, you know, whatever. Yeah. That, that's that's great. But um, life doesn't end at 19 yeah. or 21. Right. So that that's the difference, isn't it? The, the sort of the time, the time frame. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think also when you're writing a, um, a story with a romantic relationship in it, there has to be the sense that life goes on after that. That they have more things to look forward to in their lives because I think it's kind of depressing to think that two 16-year-olds have attained the height of life and this is yeah, the happiest yeah. you're ever going to be, you know? Mm -hmm. So I like to leave it with that kind of um, sense that there's more to come. Oh, I was going to very quickly quote uh, the Beach Boys. Uh, the, uh, no, one, of the, one of the greatest uh, love songs ever written, I think it was God Only Knows, and it has that line, if you were to ever leave me, life would go on, believe me. Yeah. And I think that's really important, you know, to say, like, I will, I will cope, it will, they'll, you know, be harder, but it will continue. So, you know, you've got the backup. Right. If you're going to quote the Beach Boys, I'm going to quote John Lennon. And, say, <laughs> uh, and, it, and it also is picked up in um, the best Marigold Hotel. Um, it'll be all right in the end, and if it's not all right, it's not the end. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Oh, good. Okay, you, who do you want to quote? Yeah, I'm too young for all that. <laughs> Let's have a think about your favourite happy ending fiction. Well, actually, you can you can have happy ending uh, non-fiction if you like. Um, but do you, do you have particular um, novels that kind of talk to you in terms of a happy ending, or perhaps for an inspiration? Um, yeah, I guess so. Um, I've got a few, and it's very difficult, so I was trying to think, because I quite like, I love happy endings, but I like, I like happy endings with a little bit of ambiguity mm. in, and a little bit of darkness on the horizon. Mm. So I was going to say, and as, as it's an International Women's Day, I was going to say Paying Guests by Sarah Waters, Ooh. which I think is like a spectacularly mm. interesting book. It's based in the 1920s in London, and it's in a, a relationship between two women. And it's so complex and deep and twisty and turny. And there's so many points in the book where you think everything's going to go wrong. It's going to be horrendous. But somehow out of this incredible darkness and difficulty, there's a sparkle of light at the end. And I just think she's an astonishing writer. And so that's my happy ending. Okay. Paying guests. Oh. Um, I'm going to go completely different and say Sophie Kinsella, who is my, she is amazing, and I don't care which book you pick, I love them all. So I think with her books, it's just pure escapism and happiness, and you know everything's going to work out, and so those are the best kinds of books for when you're feeling kind of dragged down and bogged down. Okay. I love the Rosie Project, oh, yeah. uh, which is a little atypical. I, uh, but the thing I loved about that, I think, is that you had this improbable romance between two good people. Uh, and I left that book at least thinking that the relationship would enable them to independently achieve more than they would have been able to achieve by themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't this uh, total merging of two people. It was, uh, in fact, an empowerment. 
of two people, which I, I really liked that notion. Mm, yeah. mm. That brings t your disciplines together very well, actually, doesn't that's it, that book? <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, right, let's get the mics out. We've got a question just here to start with. I'll pop your hand up. Right. If there's anybody over here, we can get you. Yeah, go ahead. So I must admit, a very, a very uh, thought-provoking. I haven't exactly formulated a question. I suppose if, if I have a question, it's what, what are the previous writers and books that, that have inspired you? And, and as you were talking... Uh, you know, I was thinking. I was thinking of books such as um, uh, *Sex at Dawn*, the prehistoric origin of human sexuality. Uh, I was thinking of *Sperm Wars*. Uh, I was thinking of Joseph <laughs> Campbell uh, for the hero's journey. When mm. you mentioned that, Julia, uh, I thought your discussion, when you touched upon Tinder, I thought was fascinating. Mm -hmm. I have a couple of friends who are on uh, Tinder. I have to be careful. My wife is here. <laughs> uh, who are on Tinder? One who is having a complete ball. Um, and the other who did don't go it, into too much detail. No, I won't. Yeah. The other who did it for six months, but then got bored. And I was just wondering then that sort of concept of, um, you know, the hero's journey of going through something and then coming out in a in a slightly different space. So, mm. um, I think that's part of my question: is what's inspired you from the past, previous books, previous authors, on this particular subject? Hmm. Um, um, in terms of structure, my biggest influence is the movie Jaws. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't end altogether, happily. No, no, it, it, no, well, it can't, you know, he, uh, it, it, it can't they kill the shark. That's but true. it's the most perfectly structured story for, um, ever, mm -hmm. ever, and one of the most perfectly constructed stories ever made. So I found that that was a big influence on me. <laughs> but in terms, in terms of um, writers, um, I like. Um, I really love uh, Charles Dickens, the shorter books, because I'm not very good at reading really long books. So all of, all of Charles <laughs> Dickens, Great Expectations, I think is amazing. And I love the fact that he changed the ending to that as well. His original ending was a lot darker. Mm. And his friends said, Charles, come on, give it a break. Let's, you know, at least have some light at the end of Pip's uh, journey. So I really love that you, there's two endings to Great Expectations, because being a video game player, I like the idea of being able to... Okay, yeah, so, yeah Char Char Charles Dickens is amazing. <laughs> um, again, I'm going to say Sophie Kinsella. I think she does humor really well, and I think there's this a stereotype that women aren't funny, and she just completely smashes it. So I love all her books. <laughs> I, I, I do love Michael Lewis, actually, um, and I actually love even more his books about financial markets because that does not sound exciting uh, to a lot of people. <laughs> um, subprime mortgage packages don't. Sound riveting necessarily? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no way. But that's, that's the amazing <laughs> Tell thing. Tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so then you read something like The Big Short, mm. and it's character driven, right? So he starts out with these really quirky characters, and that's what makes the book engaging. Mm. And right. now all of a sudden, he's able to give you all of this information that might not be as exciting, but it's because he's got you so invested in the character. Mm. Mm. That's the trick, isn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. A question down here for me, please. Okay, I'm, I'm having trouble formulating this one as well, but um, it's a question about the psychological component of our reading choices. So I speak to a lot of people about what they like reading depending on what they're going through in their lives. So a lot of people like reading sad stories because it reflects what's happening in their own lives. And some people, when they're going through those tough times, like to completely escape and read the opposite. Mm -hmm. What's the psychological explanation for those choices? Mm -hmm. mm. That's a great, 
That's a great question. I should probably look into that in more detail. <laughs> There's a book right there. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, I, I could tell you what we know about music, uh, and that might help with the book thing. So there's something called mood, congru mood congruency. And so if you're sad, you choose your sad playlist. If you're um, anxiety-ridden, you choose something kind of frenetic, right? And this is a really consistent finding, that we gravitate towards things that are, that are mood congruent. Sometimes people, I think with books, I think it's interesting because you'll go for something that's the opposite mm -hmm. of what you are to try to get mm -hmm. to, a, to a different place. I'll say personally, uh, I don't read a lot of sad books, but mm -hmm. if I'm extremely happy, oddly enough, maybe I can't stand the success. Uh, I will, <laughs> that, that, yeah, right. I will pick up uh, uh, something a little more uh, sad in nature. Maybe it's because I think, okay, I've got the psychological resilience uh, to, to take this now. And that's interesting. You said that about books. Maybe people just do the opposite because I get a lot of reader emails from people in chemotherapy who read my books um, just to escape and have that happy ending in place for them. Interesting. I find it. I, I'm. I think there are external factors as well. I think mm -hmm. I'm very. I think a lot of people are guided by the time of the year. Like there are certain things. Like my friend, my friend uh, Kat was trying to get me to read Tenant uh, in July. She was trying to get me to read Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. I said I can't possibly yeah. read that in summer. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I, like, I have to be wearing a scarf in front of a fire to read Bronte. Yeah. <laughs> um, I need a stone floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah so I, I need a, I need a hot toddy, um, so, which is a drink, by the way. Um, so uh, yeah, and, I, and I, you know, there's a, there's a reason why like beach blockbusters. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, sell sell summer. the particular type of book, which is sort of longer and more twisty turny, sell well in the summer because we just our headspace is is quite different at different yeah. times of the year. So I think yeah. there's external factors as well as like internal psychological factors. But also in terms of books and playlists, I mean, you know, a song's three minutes long, isn't it? So that could lift you or not. Whereas actually, if you're investing mm. you know, days or weeks in a sure. book, then that's mm. yeah, yeah. And yeah. question yeah. um, here, yeah. Hi. Um, my question is for all three of you, and I was wondering, you know, all of you had uh, different careers or like started off not immediately as a writer. So when did you know that, okay, I need to give this a try, and how does a person find that out, basically? Mm -hmm. Great question. Do you yeah, okay, well, I, che I cheated in that. Um, well, I, I've been a journalist <laughs> for 25 years, so I've, 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 I've been writing for a living, and I did English and drama at university, so the only thing I'm in any way qualified to do is to write or, or, or wait tables. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, that, so that's why I started journalism. And then um, Boy Made of Blocks came about because a publisher saw an article I'd written about my own son, who's on the autism spectrum, playing Minecraft with me uh, as a means of getting to know each other. And the publisher saw this book, uh, saw, this, saw this article, and asked me if I'd think about writing a novel. Uh, so you were approached by them. So I was approached by the by the. That is the cheating. Publisher. That yeah, is cheating. <laughs> I know. I've got a friend, a friend of mine who's a brilliant crime author uh, called Tim Weaver, uh, and it took him eight years to get his first book published. Mm -hmm. And I think when I told him about my book deal, I think he was there, there was a flash of pure hatred, like <laughs> psychotic <laughs> hatred yeah. in his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, that, it's that Gore Vidal quote, isn't it? Of um, oh. not, I can't remember. I'm going to misquote it, so I won't. But it's you know. Um, not terribly happy for your friends when something like that happens. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. <laughs> he said it better. Yeah. We, yeah. Uh, what, what about you? Um, I think I have a similar story in that. Well, I started self-publishing first, um, so I didn't have a publisher. I just uploading my books to Amazon, and that's kind of how my literary agent found me. Um, and then, you know, I got a book deal and everything like that. 
But for me, it was kind of the opposite. I, I was full-time at home with just writing for a year, and then I decided to go back and pursue therapy because I feel like if I'm just a full-time writer, I'm too focused on it, and I just, you know, publishing becomes my life, and everything is about that one critical review. And, you know, there's so much more happening in the world, and I think it makes me a better, more well-rounded writer if I'm not doing just writing. So how much, so what sort of percentage of time do you spend writing and doing your other projects? Um, I am like, I spend about five to 10 hours seeing clients as a therapist and the rest of the time I'm a writer. Per week? Um, per week, yeah. yes, per week. So it's definitely much more writing than therapy, but I feel like it gets me out of the house. It gets me thinking about different things, reading research, you know, it just keeps me thinking about other issues than just publishing and writing. Mm. Uh, I was teaching a, a course for undergraduates on the psychology of romantic relationships. And uh, there's all this research on it. And um, the students, though, did not want the esoteric theories. They had immediate <laughs> needs, you know? Uh, how do I ask so-and-so out? Uh, right. I'm fight with my girlfriend. What do I... Yeah. And, uh, What's that course called? Uh, yeah, I think it was called the psychology of romantic relationships, actually. Know. And... Uh, that would be a great book title, or like a fiction book title. I would really... Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah no, someone, well... Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the second book. I've, yeah, I've tried to encourage Ty to write a book about mansplaining, the psychology of mansplaining. They <laughs> 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 right. wouldn't listen to me. The end of my career, yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, they, they would ask these questions, and sometimes I was very bad at answering them. <laughs> and I, it would be frustrating for me, because I'd think there's actually dozens or hundreds of studies that are related to that, and I had such a hard time explaining it in a way that was accessible and understandable, which is your job as a, as a teacher. And so I thought, someone should do this. <laughs> someone should take all this research that's sitting in these library stacks and, and get it out to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So that's, it, it was wow. just the annoyance. <laughs> it kept like barking at me and from my subconscious, right. and eventually I had to do it. There was a question down here. Did you have a question? Yeah, can we get a microphone here, please? Pop up your hand. Great, thank you. Um, we, all grew, we all grew up with happily ever after. And I was wondering, how do you think happily ever after has moved on from the stories that we had as a child and historical stories to how happily ever after is now interpreted? Mm. Oh. Back to oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know... This isn't necessarily romantic, but one of the stories that I've really loved over the past couple of years, not a book, but was Moana. And I, I love that story because it was a really uh, joyful ending. But there were a few things I liked about that. One, it wasn't necessarily tied directly to a romantic situation, which was, which was great. Mm -hmm. And the other thing was, it was uniquely, I thought, from a female perspective. Um, it wasn't that when they went to battle, that was going to be that the strongest person had to win out. Rather, it was through the relational strength and through empathy that you had this uh, happily ever after happen. So I, I think some of the diversity with which we're thinking about things as a society and as a world is enriching the range of possibilities. Yeah, and I think that also, just like Ty said, it's about what makes you happy. So it, in, I think in the old days, I read a lot of, you know, the, the princess gets the prince kind of thing. 
And now it's great that our young readers can see more than just one kind of happily ever after. There are friendships and there are career choices that can make you happy. And there are, um, you know, other interrelational, happy, pro-social things that you can do that makes you happy and makes other people around you happy. So I think we're seeing a, a more diverse kind of happily ever after, which is really cool. Yeah, I, th yeah, I think the order has shifted. So I think, you know, in, in fairy tales and classic romantic tales, um, it was all about the acquisition of romantic love as an end destination, whereas mm -hmm. I think nowadays stories are much more about that's not an end destination, that's the beginning of something more interesting, mm -hmm. and, you know, which relates mm -hmm. to what you said mm -hmm. about uh, the Rosie Project, in that now right. you have two people who are functioning better as individuals because of their relationship. Mm -hmm. So I think, okay. um, what, I think what we've learned is that romantic love or the attainment of romantic love isn't a destination, it's the beginning of a journey. Mm -hmm. yep. What a wonderful place to end. Lovely. Yeah. Not a destination, but a journey for all of us. And we wish you all happy ever after. Mm -hmm. Thank you to our happy ever after panel. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.